Welcome to this podcast produced by Imagine, an online source focusing on early childhood music therapy. Imagine is sponsored by the American Music Therapy Association and can be found on the web at www.imagine.musictherapy.biz. This podcast is entitled Constructing Meaning in Music and Text, Implications for Literacy Development in Young Children with Hearing Loss and presented by Christine Barton. Christine is an award-winning composer and performer and a board-certified music therapist. In addition to her private practice, she is a music therapy consultant to advance bionics and provides music therapy services to the children of St. Joseph Institute for the Deaf in Indianapolis. Chris primarily works with children with hearing loss and those with autism spectrum disorders. She recently completed a postgraduate certificate in auditory learning in young children and joined the Project Aspire team at the University of Chicago. As my octogenarian piano professor used to say, My dear, it may be preferable to play all the correct notes, but it is not the most important thing. It is how you play them that gives a piece of music its meaning. Without meaning, it is not music. So when I read Weaver's statement that constructing meaning from a text is far more important than identifying all the words, a little bell went off in my head and I decided to pay attention to it. Where does meaning reside? Is it in the author's or composer's mind? Is it in the reader's or listener's or performer's mind? Or is it inherent in the text or music itself? Maybe, as Pearson and Stevens assert, it is in the interaction between the reader or listener and performer and the text or the music. And then, how does constructing meaning affect a child's path to literacy? In this podcast, I will attempt to meld my music schemas with the constructivist theories surrounding literacy development and examine where meaning in music and text lies and how children with hearing loss might benefit from such ideas. Smith declares that the purpose of learning to read is comprehension. Why would anyone want to engage in activity that only caused confusion? He defines comprehension as relating aspects of the world around us to the knowledge, intentions, and expectations we already have in our head. And in order to comprehend, we must be able to relate new information we are constantly confronted with to that which we already know. This possessed knowledge must be organized in a way that is easily retrievable. Anderson theorizes that one way we accomplish this is to develop schemas or mental maps for information related to our understanding of the world. For instance, let's say I received an invitation to a birthday party. Based on my knowledge of previous birthday parties I've attended, my birthday party schema, I would predict that at the party there would be many guests, presents, a cake with candles, party games and favors, balloons, and of course... Happy birthday to you. 
to the person whose birthday we're celebrating, and it would be a fun event. But now let's say I'm walking past a house. I can't see in, but I hear children's voices singing, Happy Birthday. Immediately, my birthday party schema kicks in, and I'm envisioning the kids having fun at their party. But what if I'm walking past a house and I hear, Happy birthday to you, sung in a minor key and at a dirge-like tempo? Aha, I say, I predict that someone has just turned 50 or maybe 60. Because as an adult, my birthday party schema has expanded to include black balloons, somber music, gifts like joint pain medication, rocking chairs, and wool socks. It would still be a fun event. Children, too, develop schemas that are based on their life experiences. Bath time, bedtime, playground, school, and meals all figure into a child's schema. But so do the songs and music a child hears. Consider Jingle Bells or I Have a Little Dreidel for the winter holiday. Clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere for school. Jump rope jingles for the playground. And we will, we will rock you for sporting events. And maybe Rockabye Baby or a lullaby for bedtime. And the list goes on. Such life experiences, whether musical or otherwise, build into the underlying knowledge bases used to organize and understand the world. These experiences need to be many and varied. As humans, we have a need to know what's going to happen in the immediate future and rule out unlikely events in order to cope with the ambiguity of daily life. Prediction helps us accomplish those goals by eliminating unlikely alternatives. But as Smith points out, in order for predictions to occur, there must be conventions in place. Conventions for both spoken as well as written languages. Similarly, music has its own conventions, which are defined by the culture in which we live and have at their heart a social nature. So we talk and use language of the people that surround us, and we sing and make music that comes from our heritage. To paraphrase Smith, comprehension is based upon prediction made possible by convention. I'm going to repeat that. Comprehension is based upon prediction made possible by convention. Consider this example. If someone in your community comes up and says, Hi, how are you? You would likely respond, I'm fine, how are you? However, if a stranger were to come up to you and ask, Did it rain on you last night? You would probably wonder what mental disability that person was suffering from. However, if you knew that in the Pampas region of Argentina, that is how one neighbor greets another, you would have predicted the greeting ahead of time and would have responded appropriately with, Yes, it did rain a little. 
Likewise, if you heard a musician from your community play the first five notes of this musical cliché, you would know that the next two pitches would be You would know this, not because anyone formally taught you, but because you have been exposed to plenty of Western tonal music, so that over time, your schema of musical cliches helped you identify the tune and predict what would come next. I could just as easily sing this. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. And you would be able to predict what would come next. Because in our Western musical convention, we learn that the leading tone, ti, is followed by the tonic, do. According to the music psychologist Leonard Meyer, musical meaning is embodied and made powerful by the expectations it creates in the listener and is defined by the relationship of the stimulus, what it indicates, and how it is perceived by the listener. Music's meaning, then, is a product of expectations based on previous experience with music of a similar genre. In other words, again, comprehension is based upon prediction made possible by convention. Meyer goes so far as to say that unless music is of a style familiar to the listener, it will be meaningless. Music psychologist William Ford Thompson agrees. He says, Such regularities are stored as mental schemata, which function to interpret new sensory input and generate expectation for events to follow. He calls this musical expectancy. These expectancies have been internalized through experience with music of our culture. If I were to sing that familiar do-re-mi scale in another way, like ending on a fa instead of a do, emotion would be aroused because our expectations were not fulfilled. Similarly, if I were to sing the equivalent of a Persian or any other non-Western children's song, you might not have a clue as to the ending note or the word of the phrase. Possibly, you might not even recognize it as a children's song. Its meaning would be lost to you because you are not privy to the Persian musical or language conventions. Ethnomusicologist Patricia Sheehan Campbell says it this way, Musical meaning is found within the disposition of the individual while he or she is in the act of the musical experience, as listener, performer, or composer, and is flavored by the culture in which the individual was reared or resides. Musical meaning is not discovered by analyzing the individual elements of a piece, but is constructed by the person responding to or creating it. Children assign meaning to music based on who they are and what experiences they have had. I will encourage you to look at the appendix to this podcast, and there you will hear an audio audio example of this caught versus taught notion of how children often 
um, experience and create music. I recently introduced a group of students at the St. Joseph Institute for the Deaf, where I teach, to an Irish song called Trio. It's a piece I like to sing on St. Patrick's Day because it takes place in Ireland. I usually preface it by talking about leprechauns that live in the hole of a tree. Because the children at St. Joe celebrate St. Patrick's Day in style, they have developed their own schemas for what that entails. Leprechauns, gold pieces, shamrocks, wearing green, a little trickery, and green pee in the toilets. The leprechauns do that every year. And now they have the song Trio to add to their schema. If you want to hear and see um, my version of Trio, it also is attached to this podcast. So if we apply this notion of convention, prediction, and comprehension to the world of reading, we can understand that those readers who are so concerned with getting the words right will have trouble understanding what it is that they're reading about. Or, as my piano professor stated, single notes do not make music. So how does this method of constructing meaning from text and music through our past experience with both enable a child to become literate? According to Kami's interpretation of Piaget's theory of constructivism, Children construct knowledge as an organized whole and produce that knowledge as they interact with everything in their environment. A child who is exposed to the English language will construct the English language. He or she will learn to talk by practicing and making mistakes based on the rules of that language. So initially, a child may say, foots instead of feet, and slept instead of slept, because they have heard those plural and past tense rules of grammar so often. Consequently, once a child has a grasp of spoken language, he or she begins the process of reading first by ample exposure to stories and books, and then by creating multiple opportunities to practice for themselves. Reading will be discovered once they figure out how the system works. Robertson writes, We understand something that we hear or read when we are able to connect it to something we already know about. So it is the reader who is constructing meaning. I would suggest that a child on the road to musical literacy will also need exposure to a rich and varied musical world through listening, singing, and creating music. Like early attempts at reading, a child will make mistakes along the way, singing the wrong notes, rhythm, or words, but all the while constructing their notion of the piece as they continue to practice it. They have to engage in making music in order to learn from it. Just as we can be spoken to, read to, and written to, if we never engage in the process of speaking, reading, and writing, we will never become fully literate. Robertson suggests that a child with a hearing loss engaged in a listening and spoken language approach will use the same process to acquire reading and comprehension 
as a typical hearing peer. Again, for all children with and without a hearing loss, comprehension is dependent on the child's life experiences and the development of schemas. However, because hearing loss can be a barrier to absorbing information, it may take longer, require more readings of a book, and include the direct involvement of an adult who is knowledgeable in the child's listening strengths and weaknesses. In other words, more guided opportunities for listening must be provided for children with a hearing loss. The good news is that over the course of time, research now clearly indicates that the child should become literate. Marie Clay offers some practical guidelines for adults working with those children. She says, Appeal to the child's interests and find experiences that will deepen the learning and build vocabulary related to that interest. Stimulate all the senses through a variety of different experiences. Provide conversations that prompt a child to think and to expand his or her response. Offer information that allows the child to grow in his or her knowledge base and ask thoughtful questions that get to the heart of the child's understanding of the world. I would argue as well that deaf and hard-of-hearing children on their way to music literacy also need the same considerations. Edwin Gordon says that children need many and varied opportunities to engage in musical experiences to be able to predict what will happen next at the same time they listen to the sounds of the music. And just like language, the better they can predict what is coming next, the greater their understanding will be. Patricia Sheehan Campbell offers three ways in which children learn music. Enculturation, picked up naturally from the environment without formal instruction. This is the caught versus taught idea. Guided by informal interactions with knowledgeable adults. And finally, structured, sequential learning directed by a music educator or therapist. As one can see, this approach to music learning mirrors that of the listening and spoken language method of working with a deaf and hard of hearing child. Children with a hearing loss will need more exposure and access to music experiences from an early age in order to eventually catch up to their hearing peers. As a music therapist currently working at an oral school for the deaf, I am constantly asked by visitors how it is that deaf children can participate in music. Once I explain that with the current hearing technology, their family's involvement in learning to listen and talk and plenty of guided and structured music experiences, these children, too, can become musically literate. Here are some practical suggestions to guiding a child down the path of music literacy. Sing often throughout the day to and with the child. Build songs into the daily routine. Have a ready supply of simple rhythm instruments that a child can access freely. Have a ready supply of recorded music of different genres and cultures.
provide opportunities to experience live music of different genres and cultures. Talk with the child about the music to assist them in developing understanding and to grow their knowledge base. Encourage conversation about the emotional response to a piece of music. So in summary, going back to the beginning notion that sparked this investigation, proficient readers and musicians focus on constructing meaning from the text or music and not upon the identification of each and every word or note. Literacy success depends on ample exposure to varied life experiences in the context of one's culture, which helps emerging readers develop schemas on which to construct understanding of written text, and actual practice with listening, speaking, reading, writing, singing, playing, creating music. For children with hearing loss, adequate exposure and practice may require more structure from adults attuned to the child's specific hearing challenges. But the process toward true literacy is the same for all children, both hearing and with hearing loss. And I will suggest that the same progression holds true for becoming musically literate. My wish is that for any child with a hearing loss who has the desire to pursue music, the opportunity to do so will be available to them. Perhaps one day they will hear words similar to what my piano professor whispered in my ear after my senior recital. My dear, now you understand what the music has to say, and you have said it very well. Bravo! Thanks for listening to this Imagine podcast produced in 2011.